It's wonderful to see all of you here this evening, and uh, I know you're really excited in wanting to know uh, how to explore the worldview of your friends, but also more importantly, uh, even for you to explore your own worldview. So, very few blanks to fill, that's the good news, but uh, you could take your own notes as I speak. Now, the first blank, uh, as we look at your notes, what does a person believe? That's the first aspect of a worldview. Everyone has got a belief system. Even Hitler had a belief system, and he was very consistent with that belief system. It was totally wrong, it was demonic, but he had a belief system. And then, the second blank, what, why does a person behave the way he does? Why does a person behave the way he does? Once you figure out the belief system of a person, you're in a better position to understand and appreciate their behavior. Belief leads to behavior. So whenever you see someone behave a certain way, the question you've got to ask is, what is prompting that behavior? What mindset, what thought pattern, what ideology is uh, producing that behavior? So, belief determines behavior. To put it another way, your next uh, statement, a person's outlook on life, a person's outlook on life, that will eventually determine the outcome of that person's life. Outlook determines outcome. So that's the introduction to worldview, or you can even retitle this Exploring Spirituality. As I said on Sunday morning, that's a very popular word today. And uh, you can just walk up to any friend and say, could you give me five minutes of your time? I would like to explore your, your worldview or your spirituality. And then you're going to ask these seven questions. Now, if you look at the seven questions, the middle column is where you get your friend to answer. Now, whenever you do this exercise, you've got to be a good listener. I know for those of us who are raised in a Baptist tradition, we love to talk, right? We love to tell the other people what we believe, all the information that we have received in and through the church. But in this exercise, you're going to be all ears to what the other person has got to say. You're simply asking a thought-provoking question, and you're going to let your friend talk. So the middle column is what you and I are interested in, your beliefs, and if that word belief sounds a bit uh, strong or somewhat offensive, you can opt for the word opinion. I would like to know your opinion, and then you're going to ask the seven questions. The third column is for you to express your belief, what you believe. And uh, you'll be pretty surprised how many Christians stumble on giving definitive answers for what they believe. They thought they knew, but uh, somewhere along the line, they get confused too. So I'm going to walk you through the seven questions now. Question number one is the question of origins. How did it all begin? 
So, the most popular answer you're going to hear for that is the Big Bang. Everything began because of a Big Bang. That's the theory of evolution. The Hindus would say everything began because of a big sound. And in uh, Hinduism, uh, the most sacred sound is Om, O-M. And uh, that's uh, kind of the invoking of deity. And it's very interesting in Hindu meditation uh, and even in yoga, the off-use uh, word for meditation is Om. If you go to any Hindu festival, if you go for a wedding, if you go for a funeral, uh, that's the sound that is that just uh, you, you, you just keep hearing it over and over and over again. So the big bang, that's evolution, or the big sound, that's Hinduism and New Age and uh, other associated uh, faiths. So what is our answer to that, the Christian answer? Everything began because God spoke it into existence. God created everything out of nothing. That's our answer. God spoke everything into existence by merely uttering a word. Okay? So that's the Christian answer. Origin. Everyone has to have an answer to that first question. Now, question uh, number two is a bit more tricky. Identity. Who am I? And obviously, we are not asking for the name of the person. So if a person replies by saying, oh, I'm Joe, I'm Peter, you very graciously respond and say, no, no, I'm not asking for your name, but for your identity. Behind the name, what's your identity? Now, let, let me give you the Hindu answer, and you're going to be shocked and surprised. If you ask an orthodox Hindu, who are you? What is your identity? Uh, be ready uh, to have a heart attack because they are going to say, I am God. Did you hear that? I am God. That's Hindu theology. That's New Age theology. By the way, uh, under question number one, origin, a Hindu would say that God and creation are one. It's like the spider and the web. The spider and the web cannot be separated, right? They are together, they go together. So God and creation are intertwined. Uh, creation is seen as an extension of God. But the Bible teaches that creation and God are distinct and separate. So we talk about the transcendence of God. God is over and above creation. God is not part of creation. So Hindus would say, uh, for identity, I am God. I am God, right? And, and the word for that is monism, all is one. Uh, they also use the word pantheism. God is everything and everything is God. So this pew is God, the carpet is God, the flowers are God, you're God, I am God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if your wife believes that you're God? Just imagine two gods living together. There should be no divorce, right? But uh, that's not the reality of life, even in Hindu families. So question number two, the Christian answer, who am I? 
I am an image bearer of God. That's a very, very powerful statement taken from Genesis uh, chapter one. Let us make man in our own image. You are an image bearer of God, meaning you have personality. You have a mind with which you can reason. You have emotions with which you can express yourself. You have volition with which you can make decisions. And so in that, we share similarity with God. Our God is an intelligent God, a designer God. Our God is a God of emotion. God loves, God hates, God weeps. And our God is a God of volition. He makes decisions, right? He is deciding, he has plans. And so the Christian answer to who am I? I am an image bearer of God, tarnished by sin, tarnished by sin, unfortunately, but a child of God by grace. So that's the most comprehensive answer that I can give. Who am I? I am an image bearer of God, tarnished by sin, but a child of God by grace. That's a loaded answer for identity. Now, question number three, mission or purpose? Why are you here on earth? So a young person might say, oh, I'm here to get an education. And an older adult might say, oh, I'm here to make a living. Someone else might say, oh, I'm here to marry and have children. Uh, but those are pretty superficial answers, isn't it? So why am I here? And uh, the Christian answer is twofold, to know God and to make him known. That's why you're here. And uh, you know, if anyone asks you the question, what is the purpose of your life? That's the answer that you should give. I am here on earth to know my God and to make him known to others, right? And that says a mouthful about why we are here on earth. Now, if you ask a Hindu as to meaning and purpose, why are you here on earth? A very orthodox Hindu would say, I am here to pay my karmic debt. In my previous life, I have done a lot of wrong stuff. I have earned demerit points. And in this life, I've got to make it good. I've got to pay off my karmic debt. You know, that's why it's very difficult for a Hindu to accept the cross. How can someone else pay my karmic debt? When I talk to Hindus, that's the language that I use. The Lord Jesus Christ, by dying on the cross, paid your karmic debt. So you don't have to uh, pay for the demerit points that you have in your life. The Lord Jesus paid it all. But a Hindu would bang the, uh, the hand on the table and say, no, 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 somebody else can't pay my karmic debt. I have to pay for my debt from a previous life. So what wonderful good news in Christianity, isn't it? I don't have to pay it. It's all paid at the cross. Question number four is the question of evil and suffering. As we look at the world around us, we see a lot of suffering and evil, right? Look at Egypt, look at Syria, look at all the uprisings that we have had. 
Look at all the domestic abuse. Look at the number of prisons that we have. Look at the addictions that we encounter in life, right? So why is there evil and suffering in the world? You know that a whole religion began because of question number four. And that religion is Buddhism. Buddhism began because of question number four. So 500 years before Christ, there was a very powerful clan in North India and uh, there was a king and he had a son and the son was raised in the lap of luxury in a palace. And the fellow got married and he had a son. And one day uh, this boy said, I must explore my dad's kingdom because he had lived a very sheltered life. His dad had protected him from the outside world. The only, only life he knew was palace life. So one night, when he was age 27, he jumped over the palace walls and he began to explore his dad's kingdom and the Buddhists would refer to it as the four sites that completely changed that prince. For the first time in his life, he saw a very old man bent in two. For the first time in his life, he saw somebody so ill that uh, he couldn't stand straight. For the first time in his life, he saw a monk with a begging bowl. And for the first time in his life, he saw a dead body being taken for cremation. And all of a sudden, this prince threw his hands into the air and said, my dad's kingdom is a kingdom of suffering. I have been sheltered from all that. And I must find the answer to suffering. So what did uh, this young prince do? He abandoned the palace. And that's what the Buddhists would refer to as the great renunciation. He gave up palace life and he went into extreme forms of fasting and meditation. And uh, then the Buddhists say that he found the answer and uh, through meditation. And the answer is called the Four Noble Truths. And to put it very simply, the Buddha came to the conclusion that there is suffering because of desire. So if you eliminate desire, all suffering will cease. Very simple formula, right? There is suffering because of desire. You eliminate desire and there won't be suffering. And then the Buddha came up with an eightfold plan as to how you eliminate desire. So whenever I talk to my Buddhist friends, one of the questions I raise is, the desire to eliminate desire itself is wrong according to Buddhism, because you can't have desire. And they have to agree. So there are a lot of holes in that theory. And uh, has anyone been able to eliminate desire? No. I, I'm really thankful to God that I have the desire for food. Can I get a witness? Okay, right. Okay, and if you don't have the desire for food, something is terribly wrong. You've got to go to the Oshawa hospital. So there are some desires that are wonderful uh, and that are good. But of course, there are desires that are bad. And then uh, that has got to be dealt by the cross. <laughs> I can't kill desire on my own. So. The Christian answer to the question of evil and suffering in one word is the word sin. 
There is evil and suffering because of sin. Man choosing to go his own way, ignoring God, right? Wanting to live a life of independence, and hence uh, there is evil and suffering. Now, the next question, question number five, is the solution. I, I wanted to use the word salvation, but uh, most people outside the church don't understand the word salvation. So solution is a simpler word. You can e even use the word remedy. What is the remedy? If there is suffering, what's the solution? So the Hindus, as I told you on Sunday, have a word for salvation, yoga. And there are three forms of yoga. If you practice it, you can be free. You can merge with Brahman and you can escape uh, this uh, terrible cycle of birth, life, death, birth, life, death, and that's called the reincarnation cycle. And you can escape that reincarnation cycle. One scholar that I read said, you've got to be reborn at least 84,000 different times to make good for all the wrong stuff you did in a previous life. Now that's terribly uh, uh, bad news because that uh, wonderful beef roast that I had this evening could be Uncle Bob from a previous birth. <laughs> so you can't eat any food. The chicken that you love at Swiss Chalet, do you all have Swiss Chalet at Oshawa? Right. Uh, is, it could be Auntie Jane from a previous life. So it's very horrible even to think of uh, when you look at it from that perspective but 84,000 different times you've got to be reborn. That's at the low end. I mean, this scholar was being gracious. He put it down as 84,000. Others would make it even much higher. So the solution, according to uh, the Bible, is the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, I always use three words when I talk about uh, the Lord Jesus dying on the cross. The three S words are, he died as our savior, sacrifice, substitute. And whenever I do a gospel presentation, I'm very careful to use all three words, especially when you're trying to communicate to a Hindu or to a Muslim or to a Buddhist, because those three words resonate big time. Someone else is dying for me. Someone else is taking my sin upon himself, right? I should be dying, I should be paying for my sin, but the Lord Jesus is my substitute. He is my savior, the one who rescues me, and uh, he is my sacrifice. So the Christian answer is the cross, the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and uh, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs would all say, oh, you've got to be reborn, reincarnation, many, many, many times over, till uh, finally you're purified and you're ready to merge with God and become one with God. The river ceasing to flow as a river and merging with the greater reality called the ocean. So when the sea merges with the ocean, that's when you have achieved salvation, according to uh, Hinduism and uh, Sikhism. And uh, Buddhism, you know what Buddhism says is the end goal of salvation? You come to a state 
where there is no desire, you cease to exist, it is the candle going off. And again, when you, when you even just to talk about it, it's so negative. On Sunday morning, we talked about the city of light that we are all headed to, our heavenly home, a glorified body, a body that is age-proof, sin-proof, death-proof. That's your future destiny and my future destiny. Isn't that wonderful? Now you should have said a loud amen. amen. Right, okay, too late, but we'll still take it. Uh, solution. Now, question number six, as I am looking at my clock, oh, I've got five minutes. Destiny, where do I go from here? That's another big question that you've got to ask people. You know, when the curtain comes down on your life, what happens to you? So a lot of people would say, oh, I cease to exist. Like this Hindu senior that I spoke to last week. He said, I don't care. Whatever happens, let it happen. I've lived a pretty decent life. I go worship my goddess Durga. So whatever happens, let it happen. It's not as simple as that. So where do I go from here? The Christian answer is a literal heaven or a literal hell. So if your wife burns your supper, that's not hell. That's a misadventure, right? And you as a good Christian are supposed to forgive, right? So uh, uh, there are Christians who say heaven and hell are states of mind. Uh, that's not biblical. Heaven and hell are real places with real people. But uh, the, the, the Muslims would say, yes, there is a heaven, there is a hell. But uh, the Muslim view of heaven is a place of sensual delight. And the Muslims would say, oh, in heaven there are fruit trees, there are rivers of milk, there are rivers of wine from which you can drink and you will never be intoxicated. It's all sensual, catering to the senses. But the biblical view of heaven is moral perfection. No sin, no devil, right? No temptation. A place of moral uh, perfection. So again, very, very different the way it is uh, defined uh, in, in uh, Christianity and uh, Islam. So the question of destiny, what happens at death? The, the final question you're going to ask is number seven, source. Where did you get all your information from? All the answers that you have recorded in the middle column, where did you get your answers? Now, you, you'll be surprised. There are two answers that you could get. More and more in our culture, which is very secularistic, the answer that I'm hearing is, oh, these are just what I am thinking of, subjective. So you can write the word subjective. Most of the answers you are going to get are subjective. It's just coming from inside of me. Okay, these are things that I've just thought about and these are just my ideas. But the answer that you are really looking for is objective. The source has got to be objective, something outside of you. And so that's why we say that all our answers come from the Bible. Okay, the Bible is objective truth. I'm not subjectively speaking. I'm talking objectively from the scriptures. And the Muslims would say, oh yeah, but we have the Quran. And the Hindus would say, oh, we have the Vedas, the holy books, several of them. 
And uh, our sages, when they went into meditation, they got these ideas, and that's what we choose to believe. So the source is critically important. If the source is flawed, then all the answers are flawed, right? And uh, as I told you, uh, don't be shocked or surprised when the answers are going to be more and more subjective answers as opposed to objective answers. Now, this exercise works best uh, if you do it in a non-threatening atmosphere, meaning you don't have to invite a person to church. You can take a person to Tim Hortons, or you can, during your lunch break, sit down with a person over coffee and simply take, a sh take this sheet. You can, I'm sure, get extra copies at the back and just say, you know what, we were taught this, and I'm just curious to know what your opinions are to these seven questions. And sometimes the person may uh, say, oh, you know what, I need to think through this. I haven't thought about this uh, too much. So then uh, give them that luxury and say, can I get back to you in one week's time? Or you can email these seven questions to a person. Email it to a person and say, you know what, I would like to have a dialogue with you. Uh, can we uh, receive the answers? Uh, ca can you give me your answers? I, I, I taught this to several churches and over the summer months, they paired off in twos they had a, a quick sandwich lunch, and then in the afternoon, they went down the streets, and they simply said, we are from the church uh, down the street, Calvary Baptist Church. We are interested in exploring the spirituality of our community, and we have seven questions. Would you mind obliging? And you know what? 90% of the houses that opened its doors for us were very willing to talk and give answers. And the answers were so confused. Many of them could not even give answers. I, I, I spoke to a 70-year-old Muslim man. And when I asked the question about uh, mission and purpose, he started scratching his bald head. I said, sir, by now you should know. One foot is in the grave, you should know now. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't exactly use those words, but... <laughs> But, but, but you're going to be in for some surprises. Now, what are the big pluses of doing this, uh, uh, doing this exercise, and with this I close, is under observations, if you look at your first bullet, that's all we are going to do today, the first bullet, mutually exclusive. Mutually exclusive. What do you mean by that? Both views can't be right at the same time. If one set of views are correct, the other one has got to be wrong. If this one is right, this has got to be uh, wrong. So when people come and tell me all religions are the same, I don't dispute it. I simply sit down and walk them through these seven questions. And at the end of it, as they give their answers, as I give my answers, I ask them, so uh, what's your conclusion? and they have to conclude that it's mutually exclusive. I did this with a Muslim woman, and uh, she straight off said, your religion, my religion are diametrically opposed. Man, she got it. So we'll uh, look at the second part of it tomorrow evening, and if you do have an opportunity of doing this within the next 24 hours, right, as you go to work tomorrow, uh, just get excited and start doing this, and I'm sure you can share with me some of your answers.